Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Dr Honé Cuff from the Navy's Sea Power Centre Australia. One of the features of the Royal Australian Navy for the last 55 years is that it has had a substantial patrol boat force to conduct a range of surveillance, fisheries protection, search and rescue missions. This patrol boat navy began with 20 boats of the attack class, with five of them assigned to the Papua New Guinea division. The work of the P&G boats has been previously covered in three Australian naval history podcasts on the Navy and P&G, released in 2018, and I commend these to you. In this podcast, we will discuss the service of the attack class in Northern Australia. It is a a story of long patrols interleaved with cyclones, rescues, groundings, and the occasional court-martial. Needless to say, there were some colourful personalities who gravitated towards this arduous work. To tell the story, I am joined by Captain Bob Dagworthy, online, who who was the commissioning executive officer of the barricade in 1968, then went on to command Arrow, based in Darwin during Cyclone Tracy, and bombard on two occasions. In 1985, he became the commander of mine warfare, fair and patrol boat forces. Rear Admiral Max Hancock, who commanded the patrol boat Buccaneer based in Darwin and later the frigate Melbourne. As Rear Admiral, Max was Director General, Coast Watch and then Deputy Chief of Navy. Also online, we have Commodore Jim Stapleton, who commanded the patrol boat's barricade based in Cairns and attack based in Darwin. Later in his career, he was commander the destroyer Escort Derwent and the destroyer Hobart, and was the maritime component commander for the Interfet Force in East Timor. And finally, Commodore Mike Smith, who was a staff officer in the Directorate of Navy Legal Services in Canberra during the late 1970s. He headed up the Defence Legal Services 2001 to 2003. Still an active reservist, Mike is now a barrister at the New South Wales Bar, specialising in public international law. First off to set the scene, Bob Dagworthy, why did the Navy decide to acquire patrol boats for its fleet? Well, post Second World War, the RAN allocated patrol boat type operations to the Bathurst class corvettes crew of 85. Then they used the ton class minesweepers with a crew of 33. Uh, Also, occasionally they used general purpose vessels as well. Experience during Indonesian confrontation utilising the minesweepers for patrol and interdiction tasks proved unsatisfactory. Operating costs, lack of speed, manoeuvrability, propulsion systems reliability and fit-out were among the shortcomings. This gap in capability led the RAN to introduce the attack class patrol boats with a crew of 19 to conduct patrol duties in Australia and Papua New Guinea territorial and economic exclusion waters. This requirement was developed first in 1963 and very quickly the first attack was launched in March 1967. The attack class patrol boats' primary roles were to protect Australia's borders and offshore interests, including fisheries, quarantine, sovereignty, the interdiction of arrivals and incursions by sea, search and rescue and disaster relief. 
Mike Smith, what were the rules at the time about territorial waters and fishing zones? Well, so first, as, as regards the territorial sea, uh, throughout much of the service of the attack class boats, Australia conservatively only claimed the customary three-mile territorial sea under international law. Two international conferences on the law of the sea in 1958 and again in 1960 could not agree on the breadth of the territorial sea, with six miles being the possible compromise. A period of uncertainty prevailed, but the 12 nautical mile limit gained increasing support. Yet another international conference on the law of the sea started in 1973 and concluded in 1982. We know this resulting international treaty as the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, or UNCLOS. By 1990, Australia finally proclaimed its 12-mile territorial sea. Now to the rules about fishing zones. Under the Constitution, the Commonwealth has powers to legislate with respect to fisheries in Australian waters beyond territorial limits. The Fisheries Act was first passed in 1952, and a very good year, if I might say. When the attack class boats were in service under the Fisheries Act, there was Australia's declared fishing zone of 12 nautical miles, measured from Australia's baselines for its territorial sea, including islands and certain low-tide elevations. By agreement with the states, state fisheries laws regulated the first three miles from shore. I have not located a chart uh, of the historical declared fishing zone, but at only 12 miles it must have had quite a lot of high seas in between the various declared areas. Provision was made within that 12 mile limit to issue all manner of fishing regulatory proclamations as regards licences, areas, species, catch, equipment etc. Now, as it happened, all the whilst while the attack boats were at work, including, of course, Adroit, Australia had watched the negotiations at the uh, third conference on the law of the sea, foreshadowing the new exclusive economic zone, which would soon be accepted in international law. In anticipation, in 1979, Australia proclaimed under the Fisheries Act a new 200-mile nautical Australian fishing zone, which was a much more joined-up and nationally encompassing area. Of course, it did not affect uh, existing high seas freedoms. Australia did not claim the full exclusive economic zone until 1994, when the attack boats had already made their immense contribution. Jim Stapleton, could you tell us something of the attack class design? Certainly. Um, <clears throat> the attack boats uh, were built in two different builders uh, in Queensland, in Brisbane and in Maryborough. The basic specifications were, were generally met in, in terms of length was 33 metres, or as we used to say in those days, uh, 107.5 feet long. Um, the good thing was the draft of about uh, two metres, uh, 1.9 exactly, and a, and a maximum speed of about 24 knots. Range of the vessels at full speed was about 500 nautical miles, and economical cruising speed was about 1,500 nautical miles. Um, and in sea states up to about two and three, they were very comfortable. Uh, 
depending again on where you kept the sea and all those good seamen-like precautions, you know, 15 to 30 degrees on the bow, the ships performed very well. Uh, on the beam and getting up to fours and fives, a bit uncomfortable, but most of us experienced a lot worse than that uh, during, during our time uh, in, in service. They were, they were fitted with a, a good navigation radar, I thought, the 975 uh, was called an India band. I don't know what it is now, but it was a good good navigational radar. Um, and it used to work particularly well at the height it was at because it used to get under the, 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 uh, the, uh, the conditions which enabled you to get sometimes extended ranges with your, with your radar, which was, which was pretty good. We had a good gyro compass. Um, we had a magnetic compass as well. Uh, we had a great echo sounder, which most of us used uh, when we lost everything else to sort of navigate our way around Northern Australia. Uh, and the general layout of the boat, the most uncomfortable of the people I used to feel the sorriest for were the senior sailors who had a very small head um, and washing facilities right in the bow of the ship. So in any sea conditions, it was most uncomfortable for the senior sailors. So um, you used to have to take that into account. If it was shower time up forward, then you went down sea so that the senior sailors could shower and, and use their facilities in comfort. Uh, but overall, they met the specifications. Uh, they were good in the general sea states up to three, four and above uncomfortable. I think probably one of the biggest constraints we had was the sea boat, which was a 14-foot aluminium dinghy. And getting that in the water at anything above a force one was a challenge. So I think you would find that most commanding officers probably, when they conducted any operations, boarding operations, would drive their patrol boat alongside the vessel uh, and put a boarding party across, um, particularly in sea states above sort of state three. Uh, for us as young guys, um, and later, obviously, uh, girls as well, uh, it, was, it was a great life, uh, and we put up with the conditions. Uh, we had victuals for about 14 days, I think two weeks. So we had to store um, fresh victuals every so often, but we used to catch fish, which was a great advantage, which, which, which kept us all healthy. Um, lots of tin food. Um, which we didn't have to revert to very often because the availability of stores on the north west coast and the north coast uh, were were pretty good. Uh, so overall, comfortable, uh, challenging, uh, but it was uh, a great platform and a and a and a great life for for most of us involved. Max Hancock, we've briefly mentioned the boats being based in Darwin and in New Guinea, but what was the disposition of the 20 boats? Of the 15 boats we had on the Australian station, from memory we had about five each in Darwin and Cairns, which of course were tasked with the brunt of the surveillance tasks due to the proximity of the never-ending intruders from waters to the north. Three, I think, were based in Sydney and they were employed primarily in fleet support tasks, for example target towing, general search and rescue support, navigation training support. Another was based at HMAS Cerberus at Western Port Bay and 
Her task was primarily oil rig surveillance in Bass Strait. Just as an aside, the weather in Bass Strait was so foul most of the time that the Cerberus-based boat, HMAS Arden, could rarely venture out for very long. As such, she was not subjected to the rigours and the tough life of the boats in the north. So as a result, in 1976, Ardent was sailed up to Cairns, a crew change was conducted with HMAS attack, and attack was then duly sailed back to Western Port for a relatively quiet life in her last few years. And now to really stretch my memory, I think there was another one in Fremantle, and I think she was crewed by reservists. In due course, she was moved up to Darwin to help with the load up in the north as well, and then crewed up by permanent naval forces. And finally, we had our five sister ships in PNG, which we'd see usually only when they came down to Cairns for a refit. And on those occasions, we'd try and do some basic combined maritime exercises with them. And that would work quite well if they still had all their systems up and going. But alas, very often they had engine and other system problems, which meant they really needed to get straight into the safety of the port and start the refit. Uh, Bob Dagworthy, initially, what were the facilities like in Darwin for the boats and their crews? Well, to set the scene, in uh, the 1970s, Darwin was very much a frontier town. And this uh, reflected in uh, the patrol boats facilities as well, I have to say. Prior to the development of a dedicated patrol boat facility within the Larrakia defence base in the 60s and 70s, the patrol boats were based utilising very limited facilities on the busy commercial Stokes Hill Wharf. It comprised a pontoon on the inner side of the wharf. Berthing required an astern run of about 400 metres down a tight channel between vessels berthed at the wharf and a line of moored and anchored anchored vessels, mainly fishing boats, overseas yachts and tourist vessels on the other side. Major repair work and slippings were carried out in an extremely rudimentary facility at Francis Bay. Stores were also a challenging issue, albeit the local stores team, I really have to say, they tried their hardest. The Naval Stores Organisation in Darwin was supporting the patrol boats, the Naval Communications Base, visiting major fleet units and all of the other local naval activities. Urgent stores had to be flown in. Everything else came up by road on what was then an extremely basic Stuart Highway. Floods during the wet and other poor road conditions often meant long delays for stores. Families in Darwin were provided with what was then territory accommodation, uh, basic uh, houses by today's standards. Only the COs had a phone in their house. There was no air conditioning in the houses and public transport, where the residents were located, was limited. Fresh fruit and vegetables were expensive and often in very short supply. With regard to the air conditioning, on board Arrow, I had air conditioning, so I was in an air-conditioned environment. When I came home to Darwin, I moved into a house that had no air conditioning, and there were a few nights when I nearly said to my wife, as I was an absolute ball of... uh, moisture and she was acclimatised, I think I might have to go back and sleep on board the ship. However, I didn't do quite that. Uh, 
For single sailors, Coonawarra was out of town and also poorly serviced by public transport. So most of the ship's company, who were single, preferred to live on board in harbour, despite the tight living conditions, as you would imagine, in a small mess deck on a patrol boat. Finally, we were dependent on the Army and, to a lesser extent, the RAAF for many services at that time, including medical and dental. Wait times and availability, unfortunately, did not always reflect the patrol boat operating cycles, and I used to lose personnel for a whole day uh, when they had a, a medical appointment at Larrakia. So, yep, interesting conditions, but... Uh, we, we survived and really enjoyed our time in Darwin. Now, turning to the patrol boats on patrol. Jim, what sort of work did the patrol boats do in those early days? The work was uh, from Darwin down the west coast or out of Darwin and to the east uh, across to Thursday Island. It involved usually a 21, 28-day patrol. Uh, and then a period of two or so weeks alongside to con- conduct maintenance periods. The surveillance operations conducted um, were using the radar, but also in the early days we had some trackers that were stationed out of the northwest coast, and the trackers were doing what they call Operation Trocus at the time. And we were able to get some early warning from aircraft for about a six month or so period, if I can remember that, about where the the majority of the foreign fishing fleets, predominantly Taiwanese, um, would be. So we conducted surveillance. I'll give you an example. If we went to the east, we'd come up around Cape Don. We used to come in and see the manager of the Cape Don Lighthouse because he was a coast watcher. Uh, We would check his equipment. We would talk to him and make sure that... uh, he was on side and, and giving us all the information he could. We would head further east to uh, a couple of the missions on Croker Island or uh, a little bit further east. Uh, and running along about the 12-mile limit, um, again, conducting surveillance operations and visiting Coast Watch stations to check equipment and to get verbal briefings on any activity in the area. If you went to the west coast, you would probably head out to Ashmore Reef, which was about a 40-hour trip from memory, uh, and you would make it so your timing was good to arrive there because otherwise you'd run aground. There was a a rock and a lighthouse there, uh, but you still needed to have... There were no charts uh, of of Ashmore Reef. It was what we had gained from the local um, surveying completed by oil Uh, companies at that stage. Then you would probably go down further to the west coast to another place called Scott Reef, which is off Broome, a little bit north of Broome, uh, and then head down to Port Headland or Dampier and replenish probably a day. Then you would head back north along the coastline. Um, Sometimes we would further go further west and southwest down to the Exmouth Gulf. Uh, where the communication station Harold E. Holt was, and then we'd come back along the coastline, mainly conducting surveillance operations uh, with a fishery background. Uh, I would suppose 
towards the end of my time in the mid seven, uh, 76, probably 77, we had a fisheries officer uh, embarked, uh, although each commanding officer had been sworn in to act as a fisheries officer uh, in circumstances where an arrest would have to be made. Uh, we, so we did surveillance, coast watching visits, boarding operations of fishing vessels, and why did we board? If we came across fishing vessels, we did board, uh, and generally in Ashmore and Scott Reef, we would find that the more primitive uh, type one, I think they were called fishing vessels, which were uh, from Indonesia, and they were there just collecting enough fish for the village and, and to survive. And then you went on to a more sophisticated type vessel, which was a Taiwanese pair, um, and you would board them uh, even if they were outside the 12-mile limit because we, we needed to get a record somehow of what they had in their stocks, what was in their freezers, what they were actually taking away from our uh, economic zones. So the boarding was um, conducted by all members of the ship's company um, and officers. It wasn't necessarily restricted. All the duties in the ship, which I'm sure Bob will agree, uh, were shared amongst all departments uh, and it was a very much a cooperative spirit um, with the guys. Uh, so, as I said, normal patrols, about 28 days. Uh, if I went to Perth, which I did a couple of times, I uh, went down and had a look in Shark Bay. Uh, there were some reports there of some Taiwanese fishing activity. Uh, then the extent of the time away was probably more like 35 days, which which is a long time to spend uh, together uh, under those conditions. But as I said, we were young enough at the time. Uh, busy times. So every few days you had to go and anchor or uh, go to port. My team preferred to go to anchor. They like going to port to restock and uh, refuel, obviously. But then their preference was to go to a, a quieter area, anchorage, and do some fishing, watch a movie, uh, and and then move on uh, from from there. But the patrol days were good days, uh, long days, and I think the record I think that that I did in a day I think there was something like twelve boardings or something in one day when you came across a fairly large group of Taiwanese type vessels. It sounds like the patrol boats saw a huge variety of activities. Now, Jim, you mentioned trackers. For our listeners, could you explain what that is? Uh, I'll amplify that. Trackers were the uh, surveillance aircraft used by the Navy, uh, normally based in Nowra or on the carrier HMAS Melbourne. They were an S2E Hawkeye-type, very uh, early uh, anti-submarine warfare variant, which we used to use for surveillance, surface surveillance operations. And they were generally based uh, sometimes out of Broome, and sometimes out of Darwin, depending on the area of operations that uh, we were interested in. Max, could you give us a little more detail on the boardings of foreign fishing vessels? Boardings became second nature to us all. It comprised most of what we did on our patrols, and fisheries as a client was usually the most demanding, and for very good reason, of course. Put simply, most of the illegal incursions into our waters were about fish. But spending all your times on boardings it, it did lessen your opportunities to support your other clients. Um, for example, immigration, quarantine, foreign affairs, the hydrographer. 
And I always felt a good patrol was one where we achieved something useful for every one of the clients. We brought back something for each of them. But getting back to boardings, um, sometimes the decision to board was a little bit complex, but once we funneled the info through a quick in-your-head decision matrix, off we'd go and we'd aim to get it done quickly. A few basics of the process, well, the decision-making progress were, was it going to be an unopposed boarding or an opposed boarding? That is, was the master of the vessel going to be compliant or not? Fortunately, mostly they were compliant. Secondly, was the prevailing weather going to allow it to be a safe boarding? Firstly, safe to put the boarding party on board and safe to be able to get them off as well an hour or two later. If you had deteriorating weather conditions, for example, and it was risky to get them on, it was going to be even tougher to get them off. Think, Think hard about it. In the end, not worth getting any one of our team injured for the sake of a fish. So when we dispatched a boarding party, we weren't totally sure what we were going to see. (coughs) Once the boarding party got on board and did an assessment, we weren't sure if we were just going to give the the vessel master a warning to clear out, (coughs) whether we were going to conduct a confiscation, sometimes a confiscation of gear and the catch, and a confiscation of the catch, of course, was to throw it all over the side, or we were going to make an arrest. Now, if we made an arrest... We might direct the port, the boat, to a port on its own volition, or we might need to leave our boarding party on board to ensure the arrested vessel didn't do a bolt and comply with our directions and headed off to the port. If you were going to have to leave the boarding party on board, it pretty much gave us no other option other than to spend the rest of the patrol and go back in to port with the arrested vessel. Main reason was some of your key crew members were on board someone else's boat. You had your XO, you probably had your second TIFF, probably a leading seaman, probably an able seaman. So to have to leave them on board and escort them back to port wasn't a great value for money option. We tried to avoid that if we could. Now, I hope I haven't made a pretty simple matrix sound complex, but it did become second nature to us and it was pretty easy to get up to nine, ten, sometimes more boardings done in a day. But I always felt we got our best results when we had a fisheries on board, a fisheries officer on board, I meant to say. Um, we looked after the fisheries guys really well when they were on board. We made them welcome, we made them comfortable, and by and large, therefore, any time we asked for one of them to come on a deployment with us, they'd come. They'd come for the whole four weeks, five weeks, or they'd come for a couple of weeks and we'd bring them out and then we'd drop them off again in a different port or back to their home port. Now, if we had a fisheries guy on board, we knew we had the best intelligence available. We knew that when we boarded and when we arrested, it was usually the high value, best value targets. And importantly, we also knew that we wouldn't have to go to court later on in say Darwin or Cairns or Broome on fisheries behalf because fisheries would do it all themselves. So if you had a fisheries officer on board, sometimes you did less boardings, but you got more bang for your buck. So getting back to the actual boarding itself, we'd mostly use the graunch transfer method, where we'd manoeuvre alongside and we'd pretty much match the course and speed of the target vessel and position ourselves close enough for the boarding party to step or jump across safely. And then we would haul off 100 metres or so while the boarding party conducted their inspection, assessment, etc., The Graunch transfer was quicker, it was safer, 
and in the context of demonstrating and exercising power, the poise and posture of a boat alongside was far superior to a sea boat transfer. Just think of the visuals, really. Now, I'd like to iterate what Jim said about the sea boat. It wasn't real flash to operate in rough conditions, sometimes even in calm conditions, and we'd use it rarely. We had to keep our crew trained up to be able to do it, and when it was calm, yes, we'd spend lots of time doing that. But even when we were using it in calm conditions, it always slowed us up. It was slow to launch, it was slow to recover, and you could almost guarantee something would always go wrong. Now, what Jim didn't say, and Jim was renowned for a whole bunch of things in the squadron, but he was one of the best fishermen. And I found that the best use of the sea boat was after you brought the ship to anchor in a shelter anchorage for the evening, you'd launch the sea boat, trawl slowly around some of the rocky coastline and pull in some big mackerel for dinner. That was the best use of the sea boat. Mike, what was the legal standing of the patrol boat officers to execute these boardings? And were they involved in any subsequent court proceedings? Well, just back and fill uh, the brilliant descriptions we've had from uh, both uh, Jim and Max with some, uh, some legal bits. Uh, first, as to the powers of the uh, patrol boat officers, um, under the Fisheries Act, a member of the Defence Force was deemed to be an officer for the purposes of exercising the extensive enforcement powers in the Act. To justify the exercise of any powers, the officer essentially had to have a reason to believe the Fisheries Act was being, or had been, or would be infringed by a boat. Powers included uh, board and search, examine equipment and catch, seize, detain, remove fish or equipment, inspect and question, arrest without warrant a person suspected of committing an offence against the Fisheries Act, require the master to bring the boat to port, or to bring the boat to port personally as an officer under the Fisheries Act. As regards subsequent court proceedings, I would defer to the lived experience and wisdom of those who commanded these enforcement operations, and we've heard uh, so uh, well from them. State and territory courts of summary jurisdiction, that's magistrates, could hear prosecutions brought by the local prosecuting authorities. All such prosecutions required admissible evidence of the facts alleged to prove the case. Likely, in the absence of onboard officials from client agencies such as fisheries, it would fall to naval officers to attend court and give evidence. It was certainly the later practice, and Jim has alluded to this uh, during commanding officer and executive officer training courses we conducted in Canberra, which included all agencies involved, to stress to our uh, naval officers the importance of carrying onboard officers from client agencies to obviate the prospect of being retained to give evidence uh, in prosecution subsequently. During those early years, the patrol boats in Darwin came under the command of Naval Officer Commanding Northern Australia. During the mid-1970s, this was Captain Eric Eugene Johnson, otherwise known as Big E. Bob, what was he like? Well, I served with uh, Eric Johnson uh, as a midshipman in Vendetta in 1965 during a Far East deployment. He was then the executive officer. He was always a charismatic, very colourful character, urbane, well-liked and respected by all. He was an absolute natural leader. When Arrow first arrived in Darwin and I called on him for the first time, 
his first instructions to me were quite specific. If the situation developed at sea, his orders were clear. Just get on with it and send me an intense signal. I will always back you up. Never send a proposed signal. And for those who don't know, a proposed signal means I'm not going to do anything. Here's what I'm planning to do, but I await your approval before I'll initiate action. Eric didn't want any of that. Just get on with it. In Darwin, Eric was known in the very well known in the community. And indeed, after Tracy, he was invited back and spent a long time as the administrator of the Northern Territory. Uh, one uh, amusing event that I remember when I was driving Arrow and uh, he was not now, uh, just before Christmas, we had our squadron exercise and I was uh, the senior ship and he called me up and said, I want you to take a team from the local ABC studios to see with you for the day to show them what goes on in patrol boats. So we went out for a day's squadron exercises. They went extremely well. We got back. It was Friday afternoon, tied up alongside. And that night, uh, the ABC News was a TV news based out of Darwin. And at the end of it was an extensive sports program. Eric was a very keen punter. So he always watched that sports program. Well, the sports editor had a great time on the arrow. And the whole time through his sports program, he kept referring to Captain Dagworthy this, Captain Dagworthy that, and what a great ship Arrow was with Captain Dagworthy. Anyhow, at the end of the sports program, our phone rang. My wife answered the phone. She came back and she said, Bob, it's Captain Johnson on the phone. He sounds pretty cranky. I think you're in trouble. Anyhow, I answered the phone, sir. He said, Daggers. Do you want me to send my drive around with the four stripe shoulder boards and my brass hat now, or will you pick it up in the cell bar tomorrow? I said, Oh, sorry, sir. I tried to explain that I'm a, only a lieutenant and a commanding officer, not a captain, but obviously I didn't get the message across. And he kind of humped a bit and then he roared laughing. He said, It was great PR and hung up. And that was Eric Johnson for you. Uh- Bob, in the days leading up to Christmas Day 1974, a cyclone was developing to the north of Darwin. I understand Captain Johnson and all the patrol boat captains met to discuss how to deal with the situation. Could you outline for us the challenge you all faced? In 1974, weather satellite data, especially coverage in remote areas such as north of Darwin, was extremely limited. However, on the 21st of December, the US weather satellite detected a significant storm brewing in the Timor Sea. The next day, it was actually upgraded to a cyclone. However, at that stage, its path was southwest. But then on the morning of the 24th, Christmas Eve, it was detected that its path had changed and it was now tracking southeast, but still at that stage forecast to pass to the west of Darwin. At this time, it was also only assessed as being of moderate intensity. However, exercising caution at 2pm on Christmas Eve, Nocknar, Captain Johnson, called all four patrol boat commanding officers to a meeting at Naval Headquarters. He briefed us on the situation and directed that all patrol boats 
proceed to allocated cyclone boys in the harbour and make complete preparations for extreme weather, which indeed we all did. After the families were settled and full preparations made, all vessels departed the wharf. The plan was to ride out the cyclonic weather and then come alongside Christmas morning for a festive breakfast on the wharf to be organised by Captain Johnson and the headquarters staff. The cyclone, now designated Tracy, bore down on the port and I imagine the festive breakfast was missed. Could you describe what happened next? After sailing in the afternoon, Arrow proceeded to its allocated cyclone buoy. Before we approached the buoy, we removed the anchor from the anchor chain and secured the anchor on the deck of the ship. We then, as we got to the buoy, we put a man, which is called a buoy jumper, onto the buoy by boat. We lowered the anchor chain down and then he secured the anchor chain to the buoy with a buoy securing shackle. The boy jumper, this man, and the boat were then both recovered safely back on board Arrow. At this stage, Arrow was then totally secured and shackled to the cyclone buoy. Until conditions are safe and we could put a man back onto the buoy to break the securing shackle, we were permanently attached to the buoy. The buoy itself was anchored to the sea floor by a spread of large anchors and concrete blocks. I always thought there were four cyclone boys, but as I understand it, two of the patrol boats, a sail in advance, initially anchored. Very early on, one CO felt that the conditions were such that his vessel would drag anchor, so he decided to leave harbour. The other patrol boat started dragging its anchor once the wind increased, and it also proceeded to sea. In hindsight, this was the safest option. But prior to the cyclone impacting Darwin, the standard operating procedure for Darwin was that should there be a cyclone, the patrol boats were to go to the cyclone boys. Of course, nobody predicted that the conditions would be as extreme as they were in cyclone tracing. We were able to complete the mooring before dark. We had everything secured and locked away by the time darkness fell and the wind started to increase slowly. I was completely satisfied that Arrow was fully squared away and was ready to ride out the storm safely. Uh, From then on, I didn't leave the wheelhouse at any stage except to go to the heads. And the command team, the coxswain, the buffer and the charge engineer all remained with me in the wheelhouse or on the bridge. We had a very reliable, committed command team on Arrow in which the ship's company had total confidence. The remainder of the crew, when not required, were in the after mess deck. Before the eye of the cyclone passed, however, when conditions became more difficult, I decided and ordered all the crew to come forward. Water in the form of broken surf was washing right over the ship. We would see red and green light in the wheelhouse as waves washed over us. I did not want anybody to be washed overboard or injured and and to come from the after mess, you have to pass 
through the exposed upper deck. Before it became too dangerous, I had everybody forward and all had their life jackets on. But early on, even that night, we were having equipment malfunctions. The life rafts on an attack class patrol boat have a hydrostatic release. This meant that if a patrol boat was to sink, once the seawater came in contact with the hydrostatic release, the life rafts would be launched and the fiberglass shell of the life raft would open. On Arrow, when the waves first washed over the deck, the hydrostatic releases activated and all three life rafts were inflated and lost. As a result of what occurred during Cyclone Tracy, many lessons have been learnt in the design, operation and support for patrol boats. However, at the time, nobody could anticipate what was to happen. The chief engineer had the whole engineering team extremely well organised. He or one of the engineers was always in the engine room monitoring the propulsion and generating generation systems. The remainder of the team was safely in the forward passageway, the wheelhouse or on the flying bridge. Until the eye of the cyclone passed, and even though conditions were extreme, I thought we were riding the storm out at the cyclone boy well. The eye came and then conditions became still. At that stage, I remember turning to the crew and I said to them, well, we're all going to survive. The eye is passing, conditions will be the same and then gradually reduce. We're going to be okay. However, when the eye passed, we were shocked when the conditions rapidly became more extreme, far worse than we had previously experienced. This is when it turned to disaster for us on board Arrow. The wind and the sea were extremely violent. The ship's motion changed. And in fact, the ship was jerking as it pulled hard against the chain. And we would hear loud clanging and jerking and the ship would move violently as it reached the end of the anchor chain extreme. And then the motion of the ship changed completely. I realised that we were no longer attached to the cyclone buoy. Petty Officer Catton, the buffer, called forward on the forecastle because visibility was zero. He confirmed to me that the anchor winch, the gypsy, had indeed been ripped out of the deck and the anchor chain was gone. We were underway. Soon after, we developed a problem with the main engines. The intake for pumping water in and cooling the engines came out of the water and took in air. This resulted in an airlock and the pumps failed. They could not be reprimed. The engines became overheated and were going to seize at some time. I remember when the engines began to overheat, I asked the charge engineer, how long would it take before the engines will shut down, seize? He looked at me distressed and told me, they never taught me anything about that type of problem at engineering school, boss. Until the main engines began overheating, I was thinking that I would just keep our nose into the sea and try and ride it out until the cyclone passed. However, once the engine started overheating, 
I knew at some stage I would lose my main engines and have no power. At that stage, having conferred with the command team, I made a command decision to try and run the ship up into the mangroves on the other side of the old slipway at Francis Bay. But by now, no longer, I had no radar. It had burnt out under the conditions. It just couldn't operate. The gyro had also toppled because of the extreme movement of the ship. The gyro is a spinning ball, and when we rolled so much, it just hit the stops and toppled. At this time, there was no visibility. The the sea spray was such that you just couldn't see. When I went to the flying bridge, the wind was driving so hard that I felt the sea spray would damage my eyeballs. I even tried using a diving mask to no avail. The wind, the rain and the spray were so intense that we were completely blind. I could not see the bow of the ship from the wheelhouse. The noise was also extreme. I had to shout orders right into the ear of the helmsman and the engineer. I advised them that we had to be conservative with the main engines as we didn't want to use too much power so this would reduce the time before the engine seized. I was edging the vessel around trying to get a feel for where the mangroves might be. At that stage, while I was gingerly manoeuvring, a wave hit the side of the ship and washed the vessel sideways down onto Stokes Hill Wharf. I immediately realised it was pointless to try and get off the wharf because the waves were just hammering the ship down. And I believe that because of the engine's temperatures, they would shut down at any moment. So I made the frightful decision to abandon ship. Every time a wave hit the ship, we would almost be level with Stokes Hill Wharf. When the wave dissipated into a trough, we would go right down below the wharf. I ordered the crew to get onto the wharf every time the ship rose up to the wharf's level. I stayed in the wheelhouse in case I had to manoeuvre with what engine power I had left. The executive officer and the coxswain went onto the deck and they took charge of the crew jumping from the ship onto the wharf whenever it was possible to do so. They did an outstanding job. Able seaman Mac McLeod, in his support role, was heroic during this evacuation. I understand the buffer, Petty Officer Les Catton, made it onto the wharf and was taking charge of the situation there, but was hit by flying debris and knocked back into the harbour. It was extremely confusing and a very difficult time. And being in the wheelhouse, I was not a witness to what was happening on the wharf. As I remain, um, some of the crew say that able seaman Jack Rennie, who was the other sailor who was lost, actually missed the wharf when he was jumping uh, from the ship onto the wharf and fell between the ship and the wharf. There were still a few crew members left on board when the ship had taken on so much water that it no longer was rising to the wharf deck level. It was too dangerous to jump then onto the wharf. At that stage, I would said I, I said we would have to fully inflate our life jackets 
and take our chances and leap into the harbour. At that stage, I then leapt into the water uh, with the remainder of the crew and uh, I was washed through the wharf uh, and got quite a few lacerations and uh, I really then uh, became detached from the rest of the ship's company until later on that morning. Some of the men who got to the shore were in a bad condition and had to be taken to the hospital. In particular, able seaman Kevin Rainbow, the electrician, had serious lacerations. The navigating officer, Sub-Lieutenant Andrew Birchnell, was also found. He was suffering from hypothermia and also needed hospitalisation. The body of able seaman Rennie was found by the coxswain Barry Spencer that morning. Jack had drowned. Les Catton, the buffer, his body was found the following morning under the wharf by the crew members from HMAS Advance. It's a harrowing story, Bob. My mother and her family went through Tracy and I've seen many photos of the devastation that was left in the wake of the cyclone. Jim, how did the Navy reconstitute its shattered patrol force in the north? The, uh, the account by Bob is, is uh, amazing. And it's very difficult to, to realise how they would sort of reconstitute any force at all. Um, Bob has said how his ship was lost. Uh, an attack <clears throat> ended up in Doctor's Gully, again by the sheer force of the wind as well. In fact, it had overridden an overturned uh, trawler and ended up on the shore. And the ship's company were very quick then to, once the water had receded a little bit, to shore up the ship with with large logs on either side, pieces of wood, which kept the ship upright. Uh, and they were able to, to, to disembark. Uh, the Navy then towed uh, attack uh, when it was refloated and repaired to Cairns, where it underwent a significant refit for about 12 months or when I joined her the following June, she was probably halfway through and the damage was still significant after three or four months work. The Navy then assigned other assets to, to temporarily move in and out of and the cans boats then started to come further west to make up for the loss of the patrol boats out of Darwin, now reduced by two, bearing in mind that the remaining boats also had to undergo repairs, significant repairs as well. Uh, Bob is probably better based uh, to comment on what happened exactly afterwards. The Navy arrived in Darwin from a, a week afterwards up to a month uh, in Operation Navy Help Darwin and provided assistance to the community, uh, and that was a significant effort by the RAN. Uh, and during our time up there, uh, I can remember I was in, on board HMAS Melbourne, and our commanding officer, the then Commodore Guy Griffiths, held an inquiry, uh, and he was absolutely staggered at the outstanding 
decision-making that was made by the commanding officers at the time uh, under such pressure. Um, it's lucky that the two boats who did sail uh, were in a position where they could sail. Attack couldn't sail because she was stuck to the buoy, uh, just like Arrow. And she bounced around the harbour with the boy attached, which was an amazing experience for the command team of both ships. And to their credit, their great credit, they survived. And I think that there were some changes afterwards, and we can talk about that later. But I think the concept of... Mind you, this is in hindsight. I mean, the concept of going to a buoy in such a catastrophic storm would not have been made, that decision would not have been made had we have known the level of Cyclone Tracy and the damage it would create within the harbour and its surrounds. And I dare say that that's why the rules were subsequently changed and the plan was never afterwards to remain in alongside. I believe that's been updated recently and the current class of patrol boats can actually go into the shed uh, and be dry docked and apparently the building is safe enough to withstand a storm. But as a commanding officer, I would have grave doubts about my decision to, to do that and stay there rather than go to sea and escape. Uh, and I think that that's what the, the current concept of ops probably includes. But as far as the continuing of the job, it was a combination of the two boats being repaired, um, a sail in advance, plus an increased patrol area from the CAMS-based boats. Bob, do you have any other comment? Yes, after Cyclone Tracy, uh, the survivors of Arrow remained in Darwin for about 10 days initially and helped with Navy help. It was uh, an incredible operation, controlled and uh, devised by Captain Johnson in the first place. And in fact, he won the hearts and minds of everybody in Darwin. And uh, I believe that's why he was invited back as the administrator and was so highly regarded and loved by all of those who had been there during Cyclone Tracy. Um, later on, the crew of Arrow came back to Darwin for Board of Inquiry, which was conducted by Commodore Guy Griffiths. And uh, I think it's probably noteworthy uh, talking about Arrow to just uh, read one sentence from uh, that Board of Inquiry. Uh, the orderly action of the ship's company and the mutual assistance given in the prevailing conditions, firstly to reach the wharf and subsequently to leave the wharf area, can only be regarded as most commendable. Having regard to the position of the ship and the conditions, this was obviously a major factor in the majority of the ship's company reaching safety. And I have to say... It was the unison and team spirit on Arrow, which is reflective of all of the attack class patrol boats. Uh, every patrol boat that I saw, that team spirit in a small ship is, uh, as Jim said earlier, one of the most pleasing and uh, satisfying aspects of small ship service. But uh, yeah, the Navy 
did an outstanding job in that period afterwards. I remember ships sailed on Christmas Day. People got up and left their Christmas lunch to join their ships and get them ready to go to Darwin uh, to provide a lot of support and need and assistance that was so gratefully received. Max, can you tell us something of the men who manned the attacks? What a great bunch they were. Just listen to Bob's story of the Arrow, and it characterised what it means to be a patrol boat sailor than, better than most ever could, really. They were heroes. Every one of them, including Bob, put his life on the line that day. And five will get you ten that every one of them would do so again. They wouldn't even think twice, I bet. That said, I'm glad to have a chance to talk about those that I met. I can't speak highly enough of them. That includes my own ship's company and those I met throughout the squadrons. The patrol boat was only 107 foot long. It only had a small gun. It had modest cruising range due to smallish fuel tanks, etc, etc, etc. In many ways, it wasn't that imposing. But give the boat a crew of... 19 of Navy's best officers and sailors, and you had a real force multiplier. Navy only posted the highest quality sailors to the boats. There wasn't any room for passengers. So every one of them was a key cog in the wheel. Every one of them was committed, professional, and in most cases very proud of his boat. Most would fight for the boat's reputation, and some of them actually did fight in the bars and bazaars of the North and the Northwest. In that case, mates would usually step in to make sure that nothing ever got too serious. You usually had two officers posted to patrol boats, commanding officer and executive officer, and there was no way that the courses that they underwent before joining were ever going to be comprehensive enough to cover the workaday world at sea. Navy did its best to train us all, but most of the training was then done on the job once you joined. So the ship's company you inherited, they were your leaders, they were your trainers, they were your mentors, and they were your educators. In particular, the four senior sailors. You relied on them enormously. On board the boat, all your shipmates became good mates, and mates looked out for mates, always. It didn't stop. They also pretty much became your family. The new girlfriends, the engagements, the marriages, births, christenings, were all pretty much yours to cheer on as well as theirs. We did it as a team of 20. These guys were with you when things were cruisy and they were there for you when when things got tough. They worked as a team, celebrated as a team and commiserated as a team if something went wrong. You'd get to know them really well, you'd get to know what made them tick, you'd get to know their families, their foibles, their strengths and any weaknesses that might be there as well. And with a bit of luck and experience and practice over the period of the command, you hope that you'd even get to know how to lead them, how to lead them to get the best out of them under all circumstances. Now, can I fast forward, say, 10 years when I was commanding a frigate, I'd be very, very happy to see the sailors and officers that joined us from patrol boats. I knew they'd have a fistful of experience and they'd fit in pretty well, pretty quickly. I also knew that they'd learn quickly and very soon they'd train themselves to do their boss's job because that's exactly what they did on the boats. That was in their DNA. They were a great bunch. Mike, this inexperience amongst the officers may have contributed to events involving a droit that led to a famous set of court-martial. 
you were in the Directorate of Navy Legal Services at the time. Can you outline the circumstances of this incident? Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, the events surrounding a droid's patrol in the Gulf of Carpentaria and west of Darwin in mid to late 1978 proved to be a watershed moment, both for those individuals held accountable and for the Navy and how it prepared its people for an essentially police-type role. In November 1978, the Naval Officer Commanding Northern Australia received information from a senior sailor in a droid that a recent boarding of a Taiwanese vessel, the Fu Yuan, by officers and sailors from a droid, had involved unlawful activity, including theft and beatings. Coincidentally, the master of the Fu Yuan sent an open message through Darwin Radio complaining of the same unlawful activity as reported by the senior sailor from Adroit. In short order, Adroit was boarded and searched. A naval board of inquiry was convened and investigated a broad range of allegations across six months concerning both officers and, and sailors from Adroit. The commanding officer and executive officer were relieved and posted ashore. Disciplinary proceedings at courts martial were subsequently instituted throughout 1979 against several sailors and both officers. These proceedings were conducted down in Sydney. Now bear in mind that these events were more than 40 years ago, long before the Tri-Service Defence Force Discipline Act commenced in 1985. Then at the Navy, it was still governed by the Naval Defence Act, long since repealed, and service discipline was conducted under the arcane incorporation of the Imperial Naval Discipline Act and the Queen's Regulations and Admiralty Instructions, as amended for Australian application. The charges against the sailors primarily alleged theft, and these were dealt with prior to and separately from the officers. The charges against the officers were more serious and extensive, involving assault, theft and most seriously, in a sense, dishonesty to higher command. Consideration was given as to whether charges of piracy would be laid. Piracy is an international crime open to all nations to prosecute. Of course, it is preferable that the home state, as it were, prosecute a charge of piracy itself. Several legal opinions were obtained, and perhaps unsurprisingly, they did not agree. The key point, why it was decided not to prosecute piracy, was regard for the internationally established definition of piracy by a warship. The crew must have first mutinied and taken control of the ship. Clearly, this was not the case with the droid. An Australian court or court-martial would most likely have informed itself of the key elements of the international def definition of pi piracy and therefore not entertain such a charge. There uh, were convictions on a, a significant number of multiple charges, but by no means on all counts. number were dismissed. Both officers were capably defended by experienced counsel. For his part, the executive officer could only be described as very junior and inexperienced. The commanding officer clearly had not led to the high standards of the Navy. 
So here was robust accountability for these two naval officers governed by fairness, naval law and justice. And it was career ending for both. Now, Jim, it's been said, perhaps tongue in cheek, that every patrol boat had a shoal or rock named after her that she found the hard way. Could you explain the navigational challenges for the attack class in Northern Australia? The main challenge in uh, most of the area of the Northwest was uh, there were no charts, reliable charts. I think I remember going through uh, with the XO once, uh, Lou Rager, we had a look at the charts and I think some of them dated back to the 1800s um, and, and that was the last apart from the occasional update where a patrol boat said, that rock is not in that place, it's in another place. Uh, and so therefore you would then do what was called a hydrographic note where you fix the position of the rock as best you could, bearing in mind in those days we didn't have satellite navigation, but you fix the, the position as best you could with the, with the equipment you had and then you would send off a report to the hydrographer of the Navy who would then produce a correction to the chart. And so therefore a lot of those reefs and rocks and what have you have the name of the patrol boat that raised that particular hydrographic note. The issue of rocks named after them as well goes back to one of the operations I forgot to mention when I was talking about surveillance and, uh, and Coast Watch was the, the fun we had as well with HMAS Moresby when I was there anyway, doing surveys. And you would be attached to Moresby for a month and you were another sonar and radar uh, and uh, echo sounder attached to Moresley at a certain distance. So you did numerous lines up and down the coast and it became very exciting because Moresley would call you up on the radio with a comment like, attack stop, ahead of you, 50 metres, one rock, because she had an underground sonar which, which could find these rocks which, which you couldn't necessarily see. So it was exciting for us uh, and Moresby was very, very good to work with uh, and, and it was a fun operation. I don't think every patrol boat actually ran aground, but there were a few. And uh, I remember on one occasion when I went on the slipway there looking at the propellers uh, of attack and there was a dent in the starboard propeller, small one, which they said they could do. So... I remember the uh, operations officer looking at me and saying, well, how are you going to explain that one? I said, well, I did do the circumnavigation of New Guinea and I did do, you know, there were lots of logs coming out of the CPIC or what have you at the time. So it must have been one of those coal-encrusted logs. So I filled in the appropriate forms and off, off it went. And um, luckily for me, there was no major investigation and um, the floating log, as it's called, um, it became an accepted way of explaining these dings that you may have had in your patrol boat. But again, the charts, I, I was going into Buccaneer Bay or whatever it was on the northwest coast of Australia, and I was using a different chart to the captain of advance, Bob Eames, and Bob yelled out to me over the circuit really quickly saying, Jim, there's a rock in front of you. It was on his chart, but wasn't on mine. And I had a, a, a higher definition chart, a, a much lower scale. So it was on one chart, but not on another. 
So, I mean, there were interesting things like that, which were challenges, but uh, most of the rocks were named after the surveys that we did with Moresby or after our hydrographic notes, not by what we hit. Bob, it's been said that the attacks were where many officers and sailors developed their professional and seamanship skills. Uh, would you comment on this? Yes, uh, both as a patrol boat commanding officer and then as a commander of the patrol boat forces, it was very satisfying to observe the growth in professional competency and people management skills of most small ship personnel. Many junior sailors told me how much they enjoyed the greater responsibility they had serving in patrol boats after time in major fleet units. It was also noteworthy the number of senior sailors who were keen to obtain bridge watchkeeping qualifications and developing their navigational skills. In many cases, this led to them becoming officers and indeed a number of them coming back later as patrol boat commanding officers. I also observed how most patrol boat officers' people management skills improved during their time in small ships. As Comos Min Pab, the commander of the patrol boat forces, when you stepped on board a patrol boat, you very quickly got a feel for the morale and team spirit of the ship. I would normally visit each ship when a new command team joined during the operational readiness evaluation at the end of the workup, again during the annual squadron exercise and finally the annual inspection. By and large, I observed that there was significant growth in the leadership and professionalism of all on board over this time. Finally, it goes without saying, serving in a small ship means greater responsibility for everybody on board. However, I have to say, we found out some people were just not suited to small ship service, and this included some officers. To conclude this podcast, I'll ask each of the panel to tell their favourite sea story of attack class days in the north. Bob, could you start us off? Very happy to, and it relates to uh, the spirit on board Arrow. Halfway through one of Arrow's patrol boat, uh, uh, patrols, we pulled into Broome to fuel and replenish our vittles. This meant an overnight stop. On arrival mid-morning, leave was piped once cleaning stations were completed. Unfortunately, I was not able to get ashore till late in the afternoon after I had a meeting with Customs Immigration and the local police regarding an ongoing operation. For those who don't know Broome, there is only one hotel at the wharf and the remaining water holes are some kilometres away in town. When I went ashore at four o'clock, looking forward to a nice foaming draft beer in the local wharf hotel, I arrived and there was absolutely nobody in the bar except for myself. And I have to say this extremely attractive young lady behind the bar on the other side who served me this foaming cold beer, which I hadn't had for two weeks. As I was enjoying it, she looked at me, looked me up and down and said, you're off that Navy ship, aren't you? And I said, yeah. She said, yeah, it's a giveaway, the haircut, so I can always pick you. And she said, what do, what do you do on the ship? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm the commanding officer. I'm the, I'm the captain. 
she kind of laughed a bit and looked at me and said, you know, you're the 11th or 12th commanding uh, captain who's been on, in this bar today from that ship. I said, oh, really? She said, yes, yeah, interesting. So anyhow, next morning we have uh, cleaning stations and clear lower deck before we get underway. Everybody's mustered. Uh, and I walked down to the quarter deck where the XO was taking charge of things, said, X, can I just have a word, please? And I said, right, are you blokes? Who's been going ashore and claiming to be the captain of this ship? Nine of the crew all stepped forward and said, me, sir. And the first one said, well, I'm captain of the gun crew, sir. Another one said, hey, boss, I'm captain of the galley. And so it went on and on. And then one AB had been around a long time. He stepped forward and he said, and you've got to remember, boss, I'm captain of the heads. <laughs> and that reflected the spirit and the initiative. Sadly, uh, their initiative uh, came to no good, but that re reflects the spirit that we enjoyed in a small ship. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Max, could you share one of your favourite sea stories with us? Yes, my best story was probably the shot that we fired that was heard around the world. It's not a pretty story, really, but funny now, some 40 years after the event... In the summer of 1983, we were involved in a task unit exercise in and around Darwin. I think we had four boats from our own squadron and a visitor from Cairns. We were plying our skills, we were shooting, we were rescuing, we were boating, we were towing, boarding and even fishing. It was tough and tiring and, and gruelling, but lots of fun. And these task unit exercises were very much my favourite event in the whole calendar. Now... To the point, we had to leave the exercise one morning and haul off to practice a gun salute because we were tasked as a saluting gun vessel for the fifth anniversary of self-government of the Northern Territory. Now, the fifth anniversary, a big event for sure. Territorians could easily turn even a little event into a big event, a big party. Now, this event, of course, needed no embellishment at all. Now, firing a gun for us was really easy. We were well-seasoned. We did it lots, we practiced lots, we didn't have to do it in anger very much and that was great, but a gun salute required special ammunition, um, a different procedure and a fair bit of practice just to make sure that everything was going to go good on the day. The problem was there was no saluting gun ammunition in the whole territory and none was due to arrive for a couple of weeks, it had to be trucked up from the west of Sydney. So after a lot of head scratching, Navy's Gunnery School told us that we could use high explosive ammunition to do the practicing and they devised a very, very special procedure for loading and firing the gun safely. Now this very special procedure turned a simple exercise into a very difficult one and it also introduced an element of risk that really concerned me. After all, mucking around with high explosive ammunition wasn't my idea of fun. But the bottom line was, and they told us this time after time, that if the high explosive round was inserted manually when the gun barrel was elevated to five degrees below the horizontal, that is wound right down to five degrees below the horizontal, and then the breech closed and the gun then elevated to 45 degrees, then the shell could be fired, we'd get a flash, we'd get a bang, we'd get a puff of smoke and everyone would be happy.
There was no way that when the high explosive shell was inserted and the breech closed, when the gun was elevated below zero, there was no way it was ever going to go off. Well, guess what? We did that, lowered the gun to five degrees below, loaded the shell, closed the breech, bang. Immediately we had a 40 millimetre hole, a neat 40 millimetre hole in the bow of the ship. 40 millimetres, of course, was the precise size of the shell. And we had a lot of red faces. So I thought, well, nobody trained us for days like these. It could have been worse, though. Fortunately, in the distance between the gun and the bow of the ship, which was some 30 feet or so, the fuse on the high-explosive shell had not armed itself. Had the fuse armed, it would have blown off half the bow and caused a truckload of damage, and even redder faces. Well, of course, the news travelled fast. Bad news does. And lots of people had lots and lots of laughs at our expense. Sometime later, we received a cutout of the London Times, England's preeminent newspaper, which headlined the shot that was heard around the world. In the next mail, some week, week or so later, the Los Angeles Times cutout was received, had exactly the same headline. Ripley's Believe It or Not had the same story every anniversary for some years. It probably still does. It wasn't our finest hour for sure. Funny in hindsight. Jim, uh, you next. Thank you. There, there are so many wonderful stories, as, as Bob obviously recounts. I think the one that I remember was a swords and medals that I gained um, for a trip to Western Australia. Anyhow, to cut to the chase, we were on patrol down the West Coast and we were in Geraldton and I got a signal saying, would I take over from Vampire because she had a problem somewhere and act as royal escort for Her Majesty's royal yacht. Uh, much to our surprise, uh, we scooted off down towards Perth, rendezvoused with the yacht and um, took up a position stationed near her, which must have been quite interesting for Her Majesty, I'm sure. Um, sea conditions were appalling. Uh, it was probably, you know, about a force seven, you know, off the west coast there. And so the Royal Yacht asked me where they should go. And I went down, I said, look, around Rottnest Island off Fremantle, there's some reasonable anchorages. So we went into anchor first and I thought it was quite reasonable, but Her Majesty uh, didn't think so. And so the yacht stayed there for a couple of hours and, and then got underway and spent the rest of the night at sea. Uh, we went with them, uh, and later on, um, I was detached because Vampire turned up and I went into harbour. And I hadn't been asleep at that stage for a couple of days because the weather from Exmouth down to, to, to there was, was pretty appalling. And I remember getting woken oh, about nine o'clock the next morning and some sailor shaking me saying, it was Lou Rago actually, it was the XO saying, you better get up because you've got to report on board a Vampire with Swords and Medals. And I said, oh, what happened? He said, well, when the Royal Yacht of Vampire came into harbour this morning, your crew had their washing hanging out on the upper deck. <laughs> and, of course, I was completely oblivious to, to the situation uh, and deep asleep. And so I got a phone call from uh, Tony Horton, who was the captain of the uh, vampire who was very very good to me and um i managed to find a set of the right number uniform 
borrowed a sword from HMAS Lewin and rushed across to Vampire. Um, when I arrived, he was waiting for me on the gangway, all dressed up, and I thought he's obviously waiting for someone really important. So I slid around the back and waited for about half an hour, and I saw him storm off the gangway. And in that period, I rushed to the gangway and went up, and the pipe was made and all this sort of stuff, and he came running back out. Um, he said, well, that's your second slip-up. I was waiting for you. It was formal. You didn't arrive on time. Um, so we went and had a beer and had a chat about it, and uh, he was very good about it after that. So uh, the experience was illuminating. Finally, Mike, you've got some pretty big uh, boots to fill after those stories, but could you share your favourite uh, tale with us? Uh, yes, uh, uh, perhaps not a sea story, because I never served uh, in the attacks, but a personal vignette, if I may. Um, as it happened, uh, the adroit matter which we went through before led to a major review of the Navy's maritime law enforcement doctrine and the broader setting of international law and naval operations, uh, including rules of engagement, of which there was no specific doctrine at that time. My esteemed then Director of Navy Legal Services, Commodore Brian Gibbs AM, uh, gave me the task. This led to the embedding of international law as a specialisation, first within the Navy, then across the entire ADF and the Defence Organisation. I remain forever grateful for such an opportunity and good fortune, and I'm very pleased to contribute uh, to honouring the service of our attack class boats and those who served in them. Sadly, that is all we have time for today. My warm thanks to Bob Dagworthy, Max Hancock, Jim Stapleton and Mike Smith. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre Australia, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us and if you liked this episode, please rate it in your podcast app so others can learn of the Australian Naval History Podcast series. Goodbye for now.